Good morning. Woo, that's hot. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together. It's an exciting morning, as, uh, as John Schultz has reminded us that today is the ordination and installation of Wuson. Him dressed so nicely, I had to tuck in my uh, shirt between services so that I somewhat look like a pastor as we ordain him this morning. Uh, it's good to be together. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And if you don't have one or if you don't have a Bible app on your electronic device, you can actually use the Bibles that are underneath the chair in front of you. And there you can uh, turn to page 230, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse two, or page 230 of the church Bibles. As you know, if you've been with us at all during this time, we just spent five weeks looking at our vision series called the Embodied Church thinking about who we are and what we're called to do here in St. Louis amongst many good churches in St. Louis. Um, but we kind of paused in, on our book series or our sermon series in 1 Samuel, looking at the first seven chapters through the summer. But now, because we're done with the vision series, we're going to come right back into 1 Samuel, looking at what we call the sermon series King of Kings. And the reason we call it King of Kings is because whether Israel, the people of God, had a king or not, a physical human king, God was always going to be their king. And he was always going to be faithful. And we saw that during the summer as we looked at the first seven chapters. God was absolutely faithful to his people, whether they were faithful or not. And we're going to continue to see this theme play out in the book of 1 Samuel. And, and as we did that over the, over the summer, we looked at how God raises Samuel, this prophet. But here during this fall that we'll look at 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 16, what we're going to see is this human king, their first king, come to the forefront. And his name is Saul. And we won't see that today, but we'll begin to see his rise, but also his fall. And it's a big fall at that during this fall series, and yet God will continue to be faithful to his people. And so let me um, read this for us, starting in verse 1 and read the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 8. Follow along with me. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways. But turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, Samuel, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. In all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king and who shall reign over them. Verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people and were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. 
He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for him commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for who you are and for inviting us into your presence wherever we we have been this week. Whether faithful or not, we're reminded through this book of 1 Samuel, you will always be faithful. And so, Lord, speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Open up our hearts so that even through story, we might be revealed the truths of not only who you are, but also of who we are. So speak to us, transform us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Since we took a pause for so long, I thought it'd be good for us to just do a little review of where we are in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel opens up with a woman that is barren. A woman who cannot have a child. And she is distressed, depressed, anxious, and mostly disheartened. She grieves and she goes to the temple to pray to her God, Yahweh, that she would be given a child. But her barrenness isn't one that just is about herself. It's actually a bigger picture of the nation of Israel. They are barren. They are not without child, but the fact that they are barren is because God's word is rare in those days. If you remember 1 Samuel comes off the heels of Judges and the people did whatever was right in their own eyes and there was so much corruption and it was also corruption in the people of God as well. Firstly and mostly with their priests. The priests that were supposed to be the representatives of God who actually represented God's character did not represent well. When Hannah is praying and in anguish, not knowing what words to say, Eli the priest doesn't even know what she is doing, that she's praying to God, Yahweh. Moreover, his sons, Eli's sons, are so wicked and so evil. They're doing whatever they want in their land. And not only is this Hannah barren, but the nation of Israel is barren. God's word is barren and rare. And in Hannah's barrenness and in her grief, crying out to God, God answers her prayer. 
And God gives her a son, Samuel. And Samuel comes to the forefront who becomes God's prophet. And no longer is God's word rare in those days. Remember, God's word was regular. He becomes God's prophet and speaks on behalf of God to God's people. And now we see a revival happen in the land of Israel. But then remember in chapters 4 through 7, there's this break. And the Ark of the Covenant comes to the forefront. And in this battle with the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence for his people, is taken captive into the land of Philistia. And what happens? It goes on tour throughout the land of Philistia. And the people of God learn three things in which we learned over that sermon series. First, that God will not be treated like a lucky rabbit's foot, right? He will not be coerced but he comes on his own terms. And if you want to use him, he will actually disappoint you. And he does that to Israel. They get slaughtered. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken into captive in in Philistia. But second, they learn that God is second to none. Even in captivity, he basically slaughters their God, Philistines' God, Baal, and Dagon. And so what happens? As They want to send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Israel learns thirdly that God is absolutely holy. But not a holy God that can't be in their presence, but a holy God that can come intimately to them and for them. Those are the things we learned about the Ark of the Covenant, especially God. But what happens when the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Israel in chapter 7, when we ended our time there before we came to the vision series? We saw a huge revival as the Ark of the Covenant comes back, as Samuel preaches God's word. They repent of their sin, and they are restored. And they build this rock or this Ebenezer, right? And it's a reminder to God's people that thus far, surely God, has helped us. And that has been the story for God's people, that God has helped them. And that Ebenezer, that rock, is supposed to remind them every time they see, they see that rock in their land and in their nation, that God has been faithful, that God has fought their battles, and he will be faithful to the end. As we come to chapter 8, it's been an entire generation that has passed. Samuel has gotten older. He has kids that are now priests as well. But what do we read in, verse, in the first three verses? Samuel's sons are just as wicked as were Eli's sons. They're taking money. They're practicing injustice. And so what do the people do? In verse 4 on, they cry out to Samuel for a king. If your sons can't be faithful, we want a king like all the other nations. And in their rejection of God as their king, they want a human king. And this begins to move the story forward for Saul to come in these later chapters. But what we want to learn here in in their rejection of God as their king, what I want us to be able to see here is that their story, Israel's story, is a mirror of our heart as well. And so what are the three things we can learn? Well, first, as we look at this story, the first thing we see here is that God gives us what we want. God gives us what we want. Many times he does. And what I mean by that is that even when we want what is not good for us, 
God will sometimes give us what we want or what we seek after. This is very true right now in the song household. Our kids are getting older. Our oldest is now in high school. And you know what they keep saying to us and what we're being reminded of constantly is treat us like adults, even though they're not adults. But I understand why they are saying that because they want to be able to learn from their own mistakes. Like, dad, mom, give us some autonomy. Let us make some decisions, whether they're good or bad. Let us learn. And there's some truth to that. Like, they, I want them to fail now so that they might be able to be successful later on, but also when they're older, to be able to make mistakes and know how to respond to them. And one of the, I won't, I won't divulge all of their sin this morning, but one simple, one simple story is of how one of our kids wanted a $100 hoverboard. And that was all this person or this child had in their allowance. I was like, you really want to spend your entire allowance on this $100 hoverboard? And this child was like, yes, yes, yes. I want it so badly. It's the coolest thing in the world. And I said, let me warn you. Let me warn you. Another child also bought that $100 hoverboard and never used it. And guess what happened? Our child never used it. They use it for like a week and now it just collects dust in our basement. And I so much enjoyed that moment. Why? Because I was right. And I gave this child what they wanted, even though I knew that wasn't the best decision to make. And here, God does the same with Israel. God gives them what they want, which was a human king. And in so doing, what they were doing was rejecting God as their king. And we do the same. We reject God for many other idols that we long for and love. Tim Keller, a former pastor in New York, said this in his book, Counterfeit God. This is how he describes idols. Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Is there anything like that? Kids, students, adults? An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion, energy, your emotional and financial resources, even $100 on a hoverboard, on it without a second thought. This is what an idol is. It could be romance, family, children, money, power, achievement, education, health, fitness, your looks, your beauty. What are the things that we long for in essence, rejecting God as our king because these are the things that we want over our God. You see, God sometimes gives us what we want as a way to discipline us. To be able to learn and repent and know that God is truly king. There is no other. He is truly second to none. And when we go for these other things, what happens, and this is my second point, is that what we want in our idols and in our idolatry, will take and take and take. What we want, though God gives to us, what we realize is that these idols in our lives will take and take and take. I don't know if you noticed the way I read this story, is that in verses 10 through, through 18, you hear this language of, this king will take, this king will take, this king will take and take and take and take. In verse 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 
There's a warning that God gives that though he gives them what he wa they want, he says, here's your warning though. If you reject me and you take on this human king as your idol, he will take and take and take. He will take their sons and daughters. He will take your best land. He will take your grain and wine. He will take your servants, your livestock and flocks. And you know how he ends it? He says in verse 17, and you shall be his slaves. You see, if you remember anything about idolatry, Carl Ellis, when he came to preach, he's, he was the first African-American pastor in our denomination back in the day. He came and preached, and he talked about idolatry and said, you know what idols are? They promise everything and demand nothing. Right? That's what you think idols do. But what ends up happening as you feed your idols, as you love your idols, as you live with your idols, what do you realize? They promise nothing. And they demand everything. And here, God warns us that if you want to reject me and live for other things, it will take, it will demand everything of your life. And you know who reminds us that? Not only God, but David Foster Wallace, who is an atheist, not a believer, but in his famous commencement speech in 2000, or when was it? In 2005. To Kenyon College, it's a famous, you probably heard of this, but this is what he said to this, these graduating students. He warns them of the idols that they will follow. And children, this is very, this is very particular for you as well. Quote, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, guess what? If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, whether it's your job, or influence, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings that we have. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day by day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power and beauty hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. David Foster Wallace is not a believer, and yet he understood the human heart. Everything in this world though it is good, will enslave you. And it will demand more and more and more of you until you are planted into the ground. What are those things that are taking and demanding everything from you? And you don't even realize it. Because of the daily grind of life, 
beauty, your looks, the clothes you wear, hanging out with the right crowd for you students. For us in our workplace, it could be your marital status, your relationships, your friendships, your work, your money, your house, your cars, your family and how they look. All these things demand everything but promise nothing. And here we see the realities that though God gives us what we want, we realize it will take and take and take. So what's our hope? You see, for these Israelites, even though they got that strong warning, what did they do? <laughs> they say to Samuel, no. We want a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. This nation, though it was warned, still wanted a human king. I think we very much do the same thing. The warnings are here, and yet we love, we serve, we feed the idols that we crave. But the answer to all of this and the hope is that God will give and give and give. Though our slaves and what we desire will take, God gives. What he promises, he actually delivers. And what, he, what demands there are of it is not placed on us, but placed on Christ. The demands that should have been on us for all the comforts and joys and contentment and peace and prosperity and, and consolation, all of these things that we long for, for love and identity and security, Though there's a demand on it, it is now placed on Jesus, God's Son, for us. And the reason we say that, I could say that, is because here in this story, God doesn't judge them. In their sin and rebellion and rejection of God, He continues to move the story forward with the king. And eventually it will be King Saul, but then after King Saul, it is King David a man after God's own heart. And through the line of David, we see Christ come and God himself who is gracious and merciful. He relents and he acts even in our unfaithfulness. His faithfulness is what reigns and his grace reigns and he brings Jesus to the forefront so that though we are unfaithful, though we reject the king, God brings his son to the picture so that his life is taken and suffered. He takes the beating. He takes the demand. He takes our sin. He takes our shame, our guilt, our failures. And he places it upon his son so that through his death, we might be forgiven. Through his resurrection from the dead, we might have victory over life. We might experience joy in the midst of suffering, that we might experience love in the midst of hate, and that we might experience true and a new identity in the midst of shame. You see, Jesus is the one who reminds us that it is him who takes on the blunt of the demands and says, I offer you life. That is the good news of Jesus. And that is what we need to know and remember this morning, 
And this is what we need to believe. But unfortunately, Israel failed to believe this. And unfortunately, we often fail as well. So how do we actually believe these truths where we often have so failed so much? Well, just three quick things as I close this morning. How do we turn away from our idols and turn to the king? Well, first, Israel should have remembered the Lord's past provisions for them. Remember, I alluded to in chapter 7, they built this Ebenezer stone that would remind them, thus far God has helped us. They were supposed to remember all the ways in, in their history and in their nation that God was the one who would deliver them. That God was the one that fought their battles and was victorious. They should have remembered and yet they forgot. We have such short-term memory. And we forget how often our king is faithful. But it's when we forget of his faithfulness, we turn to other things that we think will promise us everything we long for. But we need to remember God's past provision. I was so starkly reminded of that yesterday with 9-11 being the 20-year memorial of watching these different news outlets and, see, and hearing and seeing the names and the pictures of those that lost their lives, of the stories that were shared, of the documentaries that have come out. We're called to remember, and we even have that hashtag, never forget Never forget. And in that same way, in our own lives, as we follow Jesus, we are never to forget to remember those Ebenezers, those stones of God's faithfulness in our lives, whether it's through our services, through friendships, through the Word of God. We have these Ebenezers to remind us of His faithfulness. But second, we need to hear the Lord's warnings. Not just hear it, we're to heed God's warnings. These warnings were were scary. I mean, the fact that God would say, you will become slaves to this king. And yet, they don't heed God's warning. And here, we're called to heed his warnings through his word, throughout history of the church. We're called to remember, and even David Foster Wallace did that for us, remember and, and hold on to these warnings of what happens when we follow these other idols and feed them and serve them. I alluded last week to this podcast that I've been listening to, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, of this church that grew to prominence, to a huge place where they not only impacted Seattle, but they were imp impacting the entire nation for Christians as well as non-Christians. But their downfall was just as quick as their rise. And so much of my attention as I listened and as I've been listening to this podcast is there's a part of me that wants to listen and go, I feel good about myself. Thank God I'm not Mark Driscoll, right? Or thank God we're not that kind of church. Or just all the gossip and the slander. Like, if, we're, if I'm honest with myself, I like it. It's just feeding some of the things that I didn't know about this church. But am I willing to heed the warning that Christianity Today and Mike Cosper is trying to warn us of? For pastors, for officers, for leaders in the church, for each and every single one of us that follows Jesus. Even for you, Wu, as you become a deacon this morning, are we willing to heed the warnings of what it means when you follow the pursuit of power and prestige and influence and money? Whatever it is, are we willing to heed the warnings? 
and to learn and to grow so that we might become not only Christ followers, but become like Him. But the last thing we need to remember here is we need to remember our identity. I honestly think the reason we pursue so many other things and why we reject God as our King and as our Father is because we forget our identity and who we are in Christ. We are sons and daughters of the King who has created the universe and who holds all things in His hands. And it is better to be in the shadow of His wings and His outstretched arms than it is to be in this world. And we forget that. (laughs) We forget we serve an amazing, powerful, and yet loving and gracious King. As I close... I want to share what one author says about identity. You might know her. Her name is Jenny Lynn Sweat. And if you don't know, she's coming out with a book very, very soon on October 10th, 13th. Close. I was close. October 13th. Buy it. That's my one promo. That's it. But when it comes out in one of her devotionals, this is what she said about identity. This Christian identity is the most important thing about us. We are known and defined first and foremost by our identity as sons and daughters of God. Our marital statuses, addresses, jobs, and church communities may change over time, but our identity in Christ remains constant. Whether we wear the same the name tags of husband or wife, dad or mom, best friend or housemate, our primary identity will never be found in our earthly relationships. Our Heavenly Father looks at us all, single, married, divorced, or widowed, and sees the same thing, His beloved children. And so we are. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for our identity that is in Christ. That in Christ, all that is promised is given to us. But all of the demands were placed on your Son. So thank you, Lord for your sacrifice for us. May we always be reminded of how glorious and beautiful you are so that everything else that we love that still might be good but we pursue over you would feel so much more insignificant and less beautiful because of how beautiful you are. Lord, give us that. Only you can do that work. Open up our eyes. Enlarge in our hearts to see your wonder and your beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.